This episode is the story of a man who spent his entire life dedicated in service of his country, worked tirelessly to fight the Axis powers, who was unjustly convicted, and the story of his redemption so many years later. This week, we're talking about Alan Turing on Sweating the Small Stuff. Hello everyone and welcome to Sweating the Small Stuff, a show where we sweat over the science, stories, and misconceptions behind your favorite pop culture moments. I'm your host, Cameron Buzar-Jumeri, and this week I am joined by... Christopher Clutches, otherwise known as Topher. So, Tofs, Topher, Topher, we're gonna stick to Topher. <laughs> you have been a friend of mine for a long time, but more importantly, you have a very important skill set that we're going to tap into today, or I guess an important background. For you see, this week we are talking about that most classic of computer science phenomena movies, that, that biopic that deserved so many more awards than it got. I'm talking about The Imitation Game. And for any of you out there who don't know what this is, this was a, I, I think, overall, a just a beautifully told story about the famous, well, he had so many roles, and we're about to get into that, but the famous man, Alan Turing. Essentially, yes. Anytime you make a movie about a mathematician, it's noteworthy. And there's so many of them. I can only think of every year when I go look at the Oscars, it's just... Movie after movie, mathematicians. I know, right? They pop up everywhere. But unfortunately, as you are so kind to point out, that movie gets a lot of things about this guy wrong, and it barely scratches the surface of who Alan Turing really was and what his contributions to society have really been. Yeah, it. I would like to say up front uh, that it does a good job of making a drama out of a lot of uh, otherwise nerdy mathematical aspects. But you're right, there's a it gets certain aspects maybe not fully representative and it really only scratches the surface. It really only covers his accomplishments in World War II. Uh, and he made some foundational mathematical work before that and pretty much set up computer science as we know it uh, afterwards. So in today's episode, our goal is to start from what was this movie and what didn't we learn about Alan Turing? And then from there, we're going to learn some pretty surprising stuff about who this man was and how society did him wrong, and how they tried to rectify that so many years later. And then we're even going to get a glimpse into what his contributions are still teaching us today. So, in the imitation game, Benedict Cumberbatch playing Alan Turing. Born in England, he's growing up in a private boys' school. He befriends a young man who he has a tragic relationship with later. Then, over the course of the movie, we see Alan struggling with interpersonal interaction, his own homosexuality, and the context of British society in a very conservative time. And I guess the most important to the Allied victory during World War II, his creation of a machine that can crack the Enigma Code. While all of that is an incredible story, it's amazing how little it really tells us about the man this movie is about. Both him as a person and him as this background researcher, system theorist, you don't expect a movie to nerd out about everything, mm -hmm. but as someone who's studied Alan Turing and some of his early works, it's really interesting to have been studying that around the time the movie comes out. And that's been my fascination with Alan Turing and Turing's story. So I think one of the easiest places to actually start sure. is the first thing that happens to, like, I, I think if we go in the chronology of his life, the first thing that really happens to him is... He's portrayed as having no idea that his friend who he slowly becomes very close to over the course of his grade school education is about to die of a terminal illness. And this is a time when he's, it's very 
developmental for him because he his friend is portrayed as introducing him to lots of new concepts and ideas that will go to inform a lot of his mathematical work and his systems design work later. But you're you're you've told me that this is not an accurate portrayal of the real Alan Turing and how he came to grips with this moment in his life. Yes, for the most part, Alan Turing knew that his best friend uh, had the illness and was most likely going uh, to die from it. Uh, we actually have records of his and several letters uh, to his mother, and it shows that he has this real deep understanding of the finality. And it's interesting to compare that with how he then thinks about uh, one of his famous uh, theories that he develops about how a computer is ever supposed to halt. And it's interesting to compare those two and essentially that he wrote that original paper when he was in grade school around the time this would have been happening. And for those of you who don't know, the the in, the young man's name was Christopher Morecambe. And it turns out that he, not only did he know that this was going to happen, it wasn't like this just cut him out of his life entirely because Morecambe's mother actually stayed in touch with Alan after that, even going so far as to send him gifts during his time in grade school and sending him letters. It There was clearly a a meaningful loving relationship that developed between Alan and Morecambe's family even after his death. Correct. And for the most part, Turing and all of his relationships maybe didn't form a high number of them, but he was essentially notable for creating lifelong friendships wherever he went with colleagues, uh, family members, what have you. And this, I think, actually takes us to another thing about the movie that I think maybe they got it half right, maybe they didn't get entirely right, but in the movie he's portrayed as having a very difficult time just interacting with people who he doesn't find intellectually compelling. So when he first meets all the cryptanalysts, 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 in the beginning of the movie, he's introduced to them and they all think he's some, like they all seem like the typical Yale alpha male kind of guy you'd expect around that time. And he's this nerdy bookworm of a guy, but that's not representative of Alan again, because he's, he's not a social butterfly, but he was by no means an isolationist. Well, I think it also does a disservice to who his colleagues were as well. Again, the movie's kind of half right in that he does go to, I believe it's Bletchley Park, if I'm mm-hmm. saying that the British right. Uh, and where it gets wrong is he was actually recruited in a sense. Uh, he knew from his mathematical circles the uh, several of the cryptanalysis, crypto analysts that were there. And for the most part, his relationship with the commander, Commander Dennison, mm-hmm. uh, was highly supportive portrayals of him fighting with the alpha males, as you put it, I think are not representative of Alan or uh, who the other very famous and very important uh, system engineers, as we would call them now, were at the time. Even when you are in a world like that, I, I get the desire to build conflict to drive that story. But I, I, there are so many times where we like to see conflict in a movie where it doesn't really makes sense. Like if I am sitting next to a guy I don't dis- agree with, but I have to fight an entire war I'm going to get over it. I want to believe that. I mean, how much more drama do you need? You're fighting the Nazis, exactly. literally. <laughs> this is, you've, set the, you've already set the stakes as high as possible according to recorded history. Where are you going to go from here? And so this, this might be a good moment to actually step back and think about who this guy was at this point. I mean, over the course of his life, from 1912 when he was born until 1954 when he died, he became at, accomplished at varying levels 
an accomplished mathematician, one of the first computer scientists helping basically pioneer the field of creating logic machines or what we consider to be Turing machines. Yeah, you can think he pioneered our modern understanding of the science of computers. Yeah, and actually, maybe you can help us understand. There are lots of machine. There are lots of words around computers as Turing machines. Can you give us a little glimpse into exactly what they mean by that? Turing machine or that idea came from originally one of his first papers. So he became famous, quote unquote, as a mathematician. If I'm allowed to use a famous mathematician as a qualifier. Uh, when he essentially wrote a paper that uh, piggybacked on one of the other famous logisticians at the time, Kurt Gödel, uh, where he essentially proved his same um, theorem, so to speak, his same result, by creating what would be known as this Turing machine. So he essentially envisioned this sort of minimal unit machine that could do computation. The way I always understood it, the thing that sets it apart is you could think of like a calculator as not being a Turing machine because it serves a, a specific function. It is it is going to do math. You're going to put numbers in and you're going to get numbers out. But I think what I always understood the Turing machine to be is a little more general purpose. Like you can take it, program it to be a calculator and then reprogram it to be something completely different and keep doing that at different levels. And the only limitation is at the end of the day, the hardware that makes up the machine. Yeah, I like to think of a Turing machine. Uh, I actually picture some of those old time movies. Like, I'm not necessarily movie buff, but you have those old uh, pics where you have everyone is at this little desk and they have an inbox and an outbox. Mm -hmm. And it's just this guy, girl working at that uh, desk, do, taking in some paper, writing, changing stuff, sending something out, and then just putting that same piece of paper ba back in the outbox. Uh, that's what essentially what I picture as a Turing machine. It takes in some general, usually say string of symbols, this inbox sort of thing, can do this whatever magic thing, a human, maybe that human's equipped with a calculator, that sort of thing, and just gives an output. And, he's, and essentially, this is what we describe as a Turing machine. I mean, that's a big part of what he ends up doing. So he kind of combines that knowledge with, and I'm going to butcher saying this, his crypt analysis background and his logician background. These are not made up words. These are actual <laughs> words to describe Mr. Allen. Wait, wait, wait. His full name was Alan Matheson Turing. And those, those all culminate kind of in this early version of this machine that he develops, which is depicted in the movie as cracking the Enigma code. And basically it is that. It is a super machine that says, we're not going to solve one problem. We're going to solve all the problems as quickly as possible. And one of those answers is the answer we need to beat the Enigma code. Yeah, you can picture way back when in World War II, cryptography or the... Um, like they're just shuffling letters around. It's like a message comes in, we shuffle the letters around, message goes out as some messed up number that only another machine with the same inputs could decipher. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is when it's... Cumberbatch? Yeah. Cumberbun? Cumberbun. Uh, Cumberbun. Um, doing this monologue how essentially the messages, all the information about the war is just floating through the air. Mm -hmm. And it's really descriptive of what the problem was. Whether you're the Germans at the Times or the Allies, every message about every troop movement is just through the air. Mm -hmm. And you can think of it maybe as the old Morse code as, let's use that as the uh, example and you just have someone else on the other end writing down symbols. Mm -hmm. Now it's encoded, 
because the symbols they write down are not the symbols they mean. An A is some other letter, B is some other letter. And so you can imagine the Turing machine of just taking a symbol and changing a symbol came from his cryptography work because that was the problem. Change symbols, change symbols uh, in a near infinite amount of ways that defined the problem of cryptography at the time. Yeah, and what what kind of changes the game here is that his machine is able to break like before this was a problem done by people like imagine when you're sending your info to your bank it's all jumbled up like ideally they've used some sort of encryption to protect your data so that some guy sitting in the middle can't unjumble it so imagine these guys back in 1940 in the 1930s and 40s trying to unjumble stuff just using paper and pen it's it's nonsense it's impossible so he builds a machine to fight that exact kind of ciphering and say all right we can't beat this. Human beings just cannot crank through this amount of information that quickly. We need something to fight this machine. And that is where all these different facets of his knowledge come together. But this is the craziest part. We're not even done with all the things he did during his life because he was also a philosopher. Yeah, he. when we say he's a mathematician at the time, mathematics isn't what we think of it today. It was a lot more of a philosophical enterprise, particularly when you're talking about logic um, like Boolean logic uh, was something that people did. A computer originally was a person sitting at a desk. Like literally when they refer to computers at NASA in the early era when they're trying to go to space, a computer literally referred to usually a woman inside of a, uh, you'd think of it as like a typer's pool who would be assigned some mathematical problem they had to compute. Exactly. And we get to my other favorite movie. But <laughs> to stick to one at a time, Essentially, you can think of that at the time is that's just people making me meaning out of symbols, hence philosophy. Mm -hmm. To say he is a mathematician, he was very much well-trained in a lot of other mathematics, but a lot of his early papers read like philosophical works, uh, highly specific, highly mathematically precise, but philosophical works nonetheless. Even with all of that, he somehow had time to be a mathematical and I guess theoretical biologist? What was the term here? Yeah, I feel like the fact that he had such a, I don't even know the best word. Grasp? He, grasp, uh, breadth. What made Turing Turing was his ability to just take this basic setup and expand upon it in all these different ways. And so he has these, what we now know as essentially doing computation with biology or knowing how that comes about is from some of these papers he wrote in just his latter part of his career that were essentially, as best we could tell, just Turing as the post-World War II, sitting back writing professor papers, whatever he, he was doing, had just this side interest and ended up writing a foundational, some of the foundational papers. After all of that, it's just incredible to believe that a man who accomplishes all of this spends most of his life unrecognized because the work he's working on is classified. I mean, classified in a time where it's not easy to share ideas. Your work is your life in many ways. And unfortunately, as we mentioned at the top of the show, Alan Turing struggled with his homosexuality during a very conservative time in the United Kingdom in England. Yeah. And effectively, when you look around his cohorts, you can essentially find most people were at least aware or suspicious of his homosexuality, which now is horrible to say, but that the time was the norm. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, people understood it. You feel like smart people at that level of 
understanding, have a good grasp on general acceptance. But effectively what happened was at the time uh, in Britain, you had a version of decency laws, which were extended to a lot of very conservative areas, including homosexuality. And it's even more tragic because at least as the decency laws were written, it was kind of a culmination of how good of good a person you were. He essentially could have gotten by or gotten some exceptions if they had known about his very broad, very encompassing work. But effectively, his record was blank because pretty much anything he touched was classified because it was that foundational. Yeah, as I understand, in 1952, in Brown January, he is convicted or he, he is caught in an incident with a younger man and is then taken to trial and sentenced for, quote, gross indecency under Section 11 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885, just to give you a sense of what year all of the laws that apply to him right now are. And he's on trial. He's supposed to be there getting as many character witnesses and as many people to effectively speak on his behalf, to speak to his character. Because this is a man who, as we just pointed out, has no small sum of accomplishments. And unfortunately, because of the nature of his work, he couldn't get any of that help. Imagine just being there in his shoes, having done nothing but dedicate your life to protecting your country, and now your country is throwing you under the bus like this. It must have been unfathomable. Finally, his probation would be conditional on his agreement to undergo hormonal physical changes designed to reduce libido. Well, and again, to give you a sense of the character, just sheer character of Alan Turing, he actually had a choice. You could essentially serve a prison sentence or you could chemically castrate yourself, essentially was the choice. And he chose to chemically castrate himself so he could keep working. Throughout his life, between his letters, between his actual body of work, and between his choices, it's clear that Alan Turing was just constantly dedicated to this vision he created of what technology and humanity could be. And it's so painful to see humanity not come through for him. The insult to injury was the record of Alan Turing until all of his work was unclassified, essentially, was this indecent Cambridge professor. And it wasn't until the huge body of knowledge started coming out uh, about Alan Turing's work and the huge body of knowledge that developed from his work that the sheer picture of the man uh, came to light. Hopefully, if there's any retribution or light at the end of the tunnel to this story, it's that uh, he's become not only the poster child for a lot of system engineering and system-related mathematics, but also the shining example of overcoming adversity in some of the most underrepresented ways. When his work came to light, when everyone started to realize this was the man that had been wrongfully misrepresented and was honestly an early icon of what everyone is capable of being, no matter who you are, no matter what your background or preferences are. And there was such a public outcry. There was so, such a demand to see him restored, to have his image restored, that in 2009, a petition went around collecting 30,000 signatures demanding that Parliament, at the very least, pardon what happened to Turing. And the Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, acknowledged the petition and apologized, describing the treatment of Turing as appalling. And from that moment forward, there was just a continued back and forth. In December 2011, William Jones and his members of Parliament, they created a, a petition that collected another 37,000 signatures. But the pardon wasn't considered because under the laws of the time, 
he was rightfully judged and convicted. But even after all of that, multiple bills continued to be submitted to Parliament. And on in July 2012, a bill was introduced to the House of Lords to grant a statutory pardon for Turing for offenses under Section 11, which received even more signatures and even had famous individuals such as physicist Stephen Hawking writing to show their support of the pardoning of this request. After its third reading in the House of Lords, it was finally passed. This is an incredible story to show that like this man's work was so influential that it wasn't just a few people who wanted to see this happen. It went throughout the government that even though all this stuff had happened over 50 years ago, people still wanted to see this wrong righted. It's always hard to take uh, too many moral stories out of what's mathematics, Mm -hmm. uh, what tends to be a very dry science. But going through the story, I always felt this strong connection, particularly to Alan Turing, not not only because I was studying it, but uh, just to see over the course of time how these small effects, you know, a single person, a single idea can carry through almost systematically, as it Mm -hmm. were, and can affect so many other areas other than what you're studying. And I think the moral I take out of Alan Turing's story is even through all the injustice he suffered, that the irony that how upright of a person he was would help make change in society. And what I love about it is it's a really human story. You'd think this man of pure logic who's achieved so much by his pursuits of mathematics and com- what early computer science it's a very human story and it's kind of easy to leave things out with a biopic you can only get so much into the movie but there's so much more here and there's still more like we're taking what we are still trying to understand from his earliest works and apply it to the world today essentially reuse his ideas you can say come up because he put such a humanist or scientific foundation for what is computation and systems and even biological systems that essentially if I follow a principle as a mathematician or systems engineer it's what would Turing do (laughs) he would probably take it to some minimal representation relate it to something that's very human or very humanly understandable and essentially take it to infinity. And those principles are like some of his earliest stuff. Like a guy writing stuff in 1920s and 30s is still influencing how we re-examine and re-examine our world today, especially with the advent of modern computers creating these Turing complete machines that are able to do all these crazy computations. I'm I'm really glad you came to us with this story and got us a little more insight into the man behind the movie. Yeah, I always enjoy the uh, opportunity to put more uh, humans in a human science. (laughs) I love that. So before we go, is there anything else you want to tell us about Alan Turing that we somehow haven't covered? I guess the uh, small world story I always have to bring up is he may have saved my grandfather. What? So my grandfather fought in World War II on the American side, and he was a paratrooper who went in on D-Day. Mm-hmm. And he was a pathfinder, which means he actually went in before and it was supposed to be the informational relays. And essentially, the ability to do that and the ability to hide under the Allies was essentially given by Alan Turing doing his consultation for all the Allies and their ability to not only encrypt but decrypt uh, the Japanese, the Germans. Uh, again, his 
his analysis was so broad, it applied essentially to anything in the area. And the ability to hide where the Allies were going to land, which eventually was Normandy, and the ability to hide when it was, probably saved my grandfather, or else they would have probably packed, particularly the area where he jumped, a lot more severely. That's amazing. I might have not been here to talk about Alan Turing had Alan Turing not done his work. That's some full circle stuff. Thank you so much, Topher. Is there, where can we get in touch with you? If people want to learn more about Alan Turing and stuff, or if they want to talk to you, where should they go? So you're always welcome to email me, uh, C-K-L-E-S-G-E-S at gmail.com. Uh, some places you can check out Alan Turing. So his... Uh, letters are being archived at the moment, and I think most are being made available online. Uh, you're welcome to read his papers, but they can be sometimes hard to parse. And also look at usually the connections he made. So usually you can do a uh, three degrees of Kevin Bacon. You can do the same for Alan Turing. And you can usually find one of your favorite uh, philosophers, scientists, or mathematicians. I got to say, thank you so much for sharing this story with us. And as for us at Swaying the Small Stuff, I'd like to give a quick thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. We have those now, and that's a pretty special thing to say. Thank you to anyone that has been nice enough to reach out to us and share stories with us, like you, Topher. I mean, that's what led to this incredible story and this incredible episode. And thank you to everyone who's been reaching out on social media, letting us know what you think of the show. It means a lot to know you're out there, because a lot of the times, we're just talking to microphones. It's a little hard to know who's out there listening. If you want to get in touch with us at smallstuffshow or smallstuffshow at gmail.com, and I've been your host, Cameron Boozer-Jamari, reminding you, from movies to media to the world around us, it's details like these that make it worth sweating the small stuff. That was pretty good. I like it.